Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. Giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bubbs. Welcome back to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I'm Mark Bubbs. If you're new to the podcast, the whole idea behind this podcast is to learn from experts in nutrition across a wide breadth of areas to better support your athlete's health and performance, and to hopefully upgrade your health and performance at work, home, and in the gym along the way as well. On that note, my guest today is Dr. Andrew Jenkinson, a general surgeon in Harley Street, London, specializing in bariatric and laparoscopic procedures. His interests include surgery for weight loss and diabetes, acid reflux disease, gallstones, hernia repair, and surgical emergencies. He is a fellow of the Royal College of Surgeons and holds a Master's of Surgery title for his research thesis. He's a member of the British Obesity and Metabolic Surgery Society, the International Federation of Surgery for Obesity, and the American Society for Metabolic and Bariatric Surgery. Dr. Jenkinson has published over 50 research papers and is the author of a terrific new book called Why We Eat Too Much, The New Science of Appetite. Before we get started, a quick shout out to Progressive, who are sponsoring today's show. It's January. Many of us are making New Year's resolutions to improve our health and perhaps get a little leaner and lose some weight. A key pillar of my approach is making sure you're hitting your daily protein target to support health, muscle, and longevity. In a perfect world, we would get all of our nutrition from food. But in the madness of midlife and today's 24-7 society, it's a very difficult thing to do. Adding a protein powder supplement to your morning smoothie, around exercise, or as part of your afternoon snack provides a quick and easy way to hit your daily protein target, support healthy weight loss, and overall health in convenient, easy-to-use way. Progressive provides evidence-based supplements using high-quality ingredients to help you achieve your performance goals at work, home, and in the gym. Progressive has your protein needs covered. Progressive Harmonized Protein provides whey protein sourced from New Zealand and from cattle raised without use of hormones, making it an easy, effective, and clean way of meeting your protein requirements. For listeners of the podcast, you can go to progressivenutritional.com. That's progressivenutritional.com. Use the promo code BUBS to claim 10% off your orders. All right, let's get started my conversation with Dr. Andrew Jenkinson. Enjoy. Doc, appreciate you uh, carving out some time today. No problems, Mark. Listen, can we uh, kick things off here, maybe by giving listeners and viewers a little whirlwind tour of your background before we dive into all things why we eat? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm a bariatric surgeon, which means that I do surgery for people who are struggling so much with their weight that they become you know, severely obese. They come to my clinic, they ask me to either bypass or remove their stomach. Uh, so these are increasingly popular operations. And uh, yeah, I've been a surgeon doing this type of surgery now for about 20 years. Uh, I work at UCLH, which is a big NHS hospital um, in central London. Uh, I also do some private work as well. But the whole sort of interaction with patients who suffer with obesity really stimulated my interest in the um, the whole background of our understanding of obesity. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is what's, you know, formed the ideas of doing some research for this book. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating read and obviously a, 
concern around the world, isn't it? I mean, as we gain more weight and obesity and overweight is what two thirds now in a lot of major countries. And that predisposes to all sorts of the chronic conditions and metabolic conditions. And, you know, it's interesting when you open your book on the genetic side and the epigenetic side, and you talk about people who are, let's say lucky obesity resistant versus some who are obesity vulnerable versus others who might actually be more obesity sensitive. Can you unpack that a little bit for folks? Yeah, um, so we know, so the, the concept, the main concept in the book is that people have their own individual weight set points. Uh, so this is, people sort of know what that is. I mean, if you suffer with being overweight or obese, you know that if you lose a load of weight, 10, 5, 10, 15 kilograms on uh, increasingly severe dietary measures, that actually eventually your weight will be pulled back towards your weight set point. So mm -hmm. this is why dieters recurrently fail. But actually, quite a lot of people never have that experience. Their weight set point is set at the sort of healthy level. And a lot of skinny people, including me when I was younger, can't put weight on. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. um, so we have this sort of uh, genetically set weight. And there's a lot of evidence that it is genetically set from twin and adoption studies. So very eloquent studies looking at unfortunate sets of uh, identical twins that, you know, for whatever circumstances had to be separated of birth and brought up in different homes. Um, so, you know, identical DNA. And when you look at these um, offspring as they become adults, the 20, 30 years later, you find that there is a 75% concordance uh, of their body mass index, so their weight. So it's almost similar to, you know, you would expect identical twins to be the same height and have the same eye color. Yeah. But actually, even if they're brought up in different houses, uh, they will have pretty similar body mass index. So they'll be either skinny or fat, depending on their genes. So prior to these studies, a lot of people would blame, you know, the home environment for someone either becoming obese or not becoming obese or becoming, you know, remaining fit. But actually, these uh, studies prove that that's not really the case. It's much more to do with your genes uh, than your home environment. Home environment produces about 10% effect on your body mass index. So you can have someone uh, who's brought up in a relatively healthy eating eating and play environment and someone who's brought up in an unhealthy eating and play environment. But if they have the same genes, they're going to end up pretty similar as far as the body mass index is concerned. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a striking finding. And, you know, as we think about genetics and then course epigenetics and these changes that are going to happen a little bit more quickly from generation to generation can we actually even talk about bariatric surgery because when we talk about you know maintaining weight or losing weight obviously appetite's a huge part of this whether you know how hungry we feel um how satiated we feel after meals or lack thereof and of course there's some surprising findings on actually what bariatric surgery does to the to, to appetite can you share a little bit of that Sure. So we have an emerging understanding that, you know, our weight set points. So if this individual weight that I mentioned before that our body tries to maintain, it thinks it is our healthy weight, even if it's obese, it, that, it thinks it wants to stay that way. If we lose weight, it's going to drag us back up there. And two factors will drag us back to our weight set points. One is our appetite and satiety. So our drive to eat or not eat. And that's hormonally driven. And the second one is our, our basal metabolism. So the amount of energy, even without getting out of bed, the amount of energy we burn off. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of emerging evidence that uh, hormones from, as far as, as, far as the drives to eat and stop eating are concerned, that hormones from our stomach and our small intestine or guts actually have a profound effect on our behavior. 
And this is why the new types of bariatric surgery, the gastric bypass and the sleep hysterectomy, where we remove or bypass the stomach, actually work. They have a profound effect on those hormones. So, for instance, there's, I'll, I'll mention three hormones. The first is ghrelin, mm -hmm. which is produced by the body and the top floppy part of the stomach. And this is a hormone that if we miss our, you know, a couple of meals or we go fasting for a couple of days, uh, will increase significantly in our bloodstream. It will go to our hypothalamus and it will stimulate voracious sort of drive to eat, food-seeking behavior, seeking out high-calorie foods. Um, so ghrelin is very important to stop us, you know, losing weight if we if we miss a couple of meals. Now, once we do a sequestrectomy where we actually remove part of the stomach where where that hormone is 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 secreted, the ghrelin levels drop significantly. So suddenly the patient sort of feels as if their appetite has just been switched off in the brain. Wow. Um, they're losing weight seamlessly because their stomach is smaller. They can't eat as much, but they don't feel that, you know, that rebound appetite that, you know, is a real cause of dietary recidivism. Um, the second two hormones that are um, affected in gastric bypass and bariatric surgery are satiety hormones. So they are called peptide YY, PYY, and glucagon-like peptide 1, so GLP-1. And both of these hormones are produced by the small bowel, and they're sort of like uh, they're secreted when, when the small bowel senses food within it. So I, the person's been eating, particularly protein, they're, they're, they're secreted next, after, after, after sensing. And again, they go to the hypothalamus, and they are the trigger to stop eating. Because we obviously have to have a trigger to stop eating, otherwise mm -hmm. we'll be eating all the time. So these are really important hormones that will stop us eating. And with both the sucrostrectomy and the gastric bypass, both of those hormones increase substantially. So people have the perception after a really small snack of that sort of, I don't really want to eat. You know, I can, I don't even have any urge to eat at lunch. They have to sort of put their alarm on to eat, to eat, to remind them to eat and get some nutrition in their lunchtime. Yeah, it's incredible. Um, the sort of the, so that's PYY and GLP-1. GLP-1 as well, as well as causing satiety, increases the uh, effectiveness of insulin. So you don't, it increases almost the strength of insulin. So you don't need as much of it. Uh, and as is explained in the book, insulin is really, really critical in uh, changing a weight set point. Um, via this process called leptin resistance. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, a couple of things I think about there. I mean, one of them is just the importance of, of protein as the building blocks. With this, if those key sensors are really responding more predominantly to, to something like protein, it definitely hammers home that message around, you know, when we look at the general population, a lot of people still struggle to hit the RDA of, of 0.8 grams per kilo. Yeah, I think a lot of people, uh, we've, we've understand for a long time that, you know, uh, saturated fat and protein do increase satiety, and now we sort of know why it increases these mm -hmm. gut hormones and acts hypothalamically. Yeah, I mean that's uh, you know tr tremendous. And then you know you mentioned leptin, and obviously as people gain weight and a significant amount of weight, that leptin signal doesn't start; to, it doesn't work as well. We become resistant, as you mentioned, to that, and of course insulin that signaling doesn't work as well. And and it, it, due due to this chronic inflammation that we that is the milieu that starts to increase and that noise gets so loud that these signals really can't be heard appropriately. Can you talk a little bit about how TNF-alpha plays a role in this whole story? 
Sure, yeah. I mean, I think uh, you mentioned leptin resistance. Mm -hmm. And this is the absolute crux of understanding obesity. And this is the thing that actually even most doctors don't understand. And it's probably the reason that we have, you know, societal prejudice against people who are struggling with obesity. Yeah. So leptin is the hormone that comes from our fat cells. So the more fat we have, the higher the level of leptin in the bloodstream. Um, and leptin levels are sensed by the hypothalamus, which controls our eating and our metabolism. So the amount of energy we take in, the amount of energy we, 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 we expend. And the hypothalamus is very, very sensitive. It wants to know how much fuel or energy or fat we have on board. It's very mm -hmm. important. I mean, it's, this is like a crucial you know, um, survival sort of uh, signal. Yeah, through um, evolution, we had to really know how much fuel we had, didn't exactly. we? Exactly. Well, all species have this, this mm -hmm. sense. They need to know how much energy is on board. And leptin is a crucial signal. And the higher the leptin level, if you do start to increase weight, say you go on holiday or whatever, and um, you're all-inclusive for a couple of weeks, you put on nice. pounds or kilograms, your leptin level will go up. And the hypothalamus will sense it, uh, and it will think, oh, actually, we're okay. We've got enough energy on board. We can, like, ratchet down on the appetite, uh, and we can just slowly, sort of slightly increase our metabolic rate, um, just burn up a little bit more energy seamlessly. Mm -hmm. um, and this is why a lot of people, when they've put a little bit of weight on during their holiday, actually, it's quite easy to lose it. They think that maybe they're, you know, a few sessions in the gym or a little bit of stuck, a, yeah. the latest bag is working, but actually it's not. It's the leptin signal that it's actually working for them um, if you become sick and uh, you lose some weight your leptin signal goes down your leptin levels go down the hypothalamus responds to it it will give you a voracious appetite you're going to go out you're going to you know eat extra meals chocolate whatever mm -hmm. and you're going to be you're going to feel very lazy metabolic rate's gone down so this is the way that leptin signaling sort of uh, keeps us at a particular weight set point when we have an environment where there is too much sugar and uh, refined carbohydrates, we have a population whose insulin levels on average are much, much higher um, because insulin obviously is, is produced in response to, to sugar and carbohydrate intake. Mm -hmm. Insulin signals on the same um, cell as of the hypothalamus that leptin does. So it has a joint signal. Um, the more insulin you have, the, the weaker the leptin signal. Um, so you have this situation uh, in populations in, in Western societies with you know, highly refined food and high sugar foods where they have high leptin levels. They are fat. They have far too much energy on board. But because mm -hmm. their insulin levels are so high, that signal is being obscured. So your brain can't, can't see it. It can't tell that you're carrying too much weight. Um, and this is a thing called leptin resistance, which is what happens with end-stage obesity. And it's not just insulin that causes that. It's the other thing that you mentioned, inflammation. So inflammation uh, is a secondary effect of uh, obesity. So every person who's obese will have a low-grade inflammation in their body. And this produces a, 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 an inflammatory factor called TNF-alpha, which has been shown, uh, one, to interfere with insulin signaling. So you need more insulin which can affect the leptin yep. of the hypothalamus, but also has a direct effect on inflammation in the hypothalamus and, again, poor signaling and this situation where your leptin levels are high, but actually your brain can't, can't, uh, can't sense it. 
And the, the great analogy in the book to help people understand is like if you're driving along the highway or the, the motorway and you see that your gas tank meter, your petrol meter is on empty, it's flashing. You start yeah. panicking, you think, oh, God, I've got to fill up. You know, So you, you look for the next uh, petrol station. When you open the, the tank and start to fill up, you realize it's already full. Mm. You know, The problem is the gas tank meter, the petrol meter is broken. Yeah. And this is what leptin resistance is. This, you know, this actual feeling of being hungry, this feeling of having an empty tank, but actually having a, having a, a, a tank that's far too full, having a, a, an oil tank that's worth of energy on board when you feel like you're on empty. That's what that term is. And that totally explains obesity. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, as you circle back to your obesity vulnerable types and your obesity sensitive, obviously this just amplifies everything, doesn't it, in terms of... Yeah, yeah. And it's a scary condition. I mean, obesity, I mean, obviously I've spoken to thousands of patients uh, with it from a very objective point of view because I'm from uh, you know, my dad's skin, whatever, uh, I can't put weight on. So very, very objective, having never been on a diet. Actually, this is quite a scary condition, you know, not being able to get out of it, transiently being able to step out with some like... A really, really calorie restrictive diet or whatever, but actually always being pulled back to that weight set point and that, you know, uh, societal perception that there's something wrong with you. You know, why can't you pull yourself together? Why can't you go on a diet or eat proper food and uh, or go to the gym, you know? And this is a, something that's affecting a third of our populations, it's causing terrible, you know, uh, unhappiness and ill health, you know, type 2 diabetes, blood pressure, cholesterol, and things. Yeah, I mean, it's it's staggering. And as you mentioned, you know, when the food environment is ultra processed around us and them, then it's, you know, it just amplifies this, to your point, there's almost nowhere to turn and we're predisposing now all the chronic conditions, both physical and mental. And, you know, when we look at obesity, you also talk about obesity being a deficiency disease. Can you talk a little bit on the nutrition side? You know, are we, does that type of diet, then that ultra processed food diet that people are struggling with then lead to some nutrient deficiencies that can worsen or amplify what's going on there? So there's a chapter in the book uh, called, um, I think it's called the Omega Factor. And it talks about the uh, omega-3 and omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids. And we're sure we've all heard of, you know, omega-3 is supposed to be good for you. Mm -hmm. A lot of, uh, some labeling says omega-6 is good for you, but like they're both basically uh, essential fatty acids, which means we can't produce them. Mm -hmm. Just, and it's basically like the same as a vitamin. So if we don't have them in our diet, we can't produce them, so we're going to actually get you know, some serious diseases. So it's a little bit like um, vitamin C or I mean, the examples in the, the book, uh, vitamin B1, so with thiamine deficiency causing beriberi or mm -hmm. vitamin C deficiency causing scurvy. So these are the sort of historical examples of diseases that you know were there hundreds of years ago. A lot of research was done on them, but people didn't realize there were a deficiency. There was a lot of different explanations, you know. Mm -hmm. So this chapter of the book looks at is maybe obesity caused by some sort of deficiency or disruption of um, some sort of you know, essential vitamin or fatty acid that we don't uh, fully understand yet. And the, the whole you know, chapter is a hypothesis, but I, I really do think that it's sort of on the right lines. And I think it may be proven in the future because we know that populations who have Western foods um, it's not just the sugar and the refined carbohydrates, but it's also the fact that the food has to be industrialized. It has to be uh, stable. It has to sit on shelves for, for weeks and months on end in order for it to be you know, um, profitable for food companies. 
And in order to do that, you have to take the omega-3 out of it, which is something that makes makes food go off. It's in fresh foods, yeah. vegetables and, uh, and meats and fish. And you have to replace that with omega-6, which is in pretty stable foods, so nuts and things like that, things that don't go off so much. Um, and when we look at the omega-3-6 ratio in, um, in our cells, because omega-3 and 6 are, are, are very essential in signaling in our cells, the ratio in Western populations is massively disrupted. So we, we should have a ratio of about either 1 to 1 or 4 to 1 omega-6 to 3. Uh, but actually in quite a lot of Western uh, societies, it's 20 to 1. So we have a massive increase in omega-6 uh, in our cellular sort of really important messaging part of our cells. And omega-6 causes inflammation and it causes disruption of insulin signaling, um, whereas omega-3 decreases inflammation and improves insulin signaling. And the hypothesis is that, you know, if you infuse a Western population's diet with omega-6, vegetable oils, basically, you know, that population will increase their uh, insulin, increase their inflammation, get leptin resistance and become obese. And when you look at the epidemiology, it sort of seems to, it seems to fit in. Yeah. So it's a sort of a hypothesis. And actually the, the, the book sort of expands into, you know, what happens with animals? So for yeah, instance, mention um, some of the test, tests on mice that you mentioned in the book, it's really fascinating. So not just mice, but um, hibernating animals. Mm -hmm. um, so what is a signal that a brown bear gets as winter is approaching to get a voracious appetite and you know put on 30 40 kilograms you know yeah. in order for it to have that fat to last it through the winter well actually when you look at some of the evidence there the type of food that there is available is more sort of uh, nuts and seeds in the winter um, and that can affect the uh, omega-3-6 sort of ratio in, in brown bears, and that may be the signal. There is some other evidence wow. of vitamin D, vitamin D or, or even sunlight may, may be some sort of a signal. But we don't understand these things, but we know that there's something in the environment in the autumn that will stimulate some animals, hibernating or tupor animals, to put on a lot of weight. Um, we don't fully understand. But my hypothesis is that maybe there's something in the Western diet that actually also signals, in a way we don't understand, large chunks of the population to, uh, you know, uh, put on a lot of weight. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you see the mega sixes, as you mentioned, very pro-inflammatory. And when we see the amounts that high, almost also serving as a proxy for processed food intake, because we know, as you mentioned, they're full of omega sixes. And so we've got this high processed food, which is bringing on too much energy and bringing on too much omega six, which is contributing to this whole milieu of, of inflammation. And uh, the idea of, of lacking in nutrients that, that the brain would then stimulate appetite to try to obtain whether it's the protein or various nutrients is seems pretty the compelling. The whole thing is, Mark, that the reason that our diet is infused with uh, vegetable oils that are very stable, and also with sugars and refined carbohydrates, is this historical difficulty with saturated fat being linked with cardiac risk, um, which again is totally unpicked in the book. You know, this research was biased and flawed, uh, but so successful in changing the, you know, the psyche of basically the whole world, associating, for instance, a juicy um, fatty steak with producing, you know, furring up the arteries and cardiac risk, or, you know, too much sausages or too much cheese or too many eggs, you know, we still have this in our psyche. But actually this research, as is totally unpicked in the book, 
is flawed. And there is increasing evidence that natural saturated fats, you know, from uh, red meat and dairy products are not a massive cardiac risk. Maybe a very small risk for some people with natural high cholesterol levels, but actually the real risk, cardiac risk, is sugar and refined carbohydrate, which increase triglyceride levels and you know, give you the risks that way. Mm -hmm. um, because governments you know, had this wrong idea in the 1980s that you know, saturated fat was going to cause their population to, 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 to start dying up from cardiac disease, they gave us the, you know, the dietary guidelines in the 1980s to reduce saturated fat and replace it with heart-healthy vegetable oils, so mm -hmm. flora, you know, all of these rubbish margarines, totally artificial foods, um, and sugar and refined carbohydrate. They said whole grains, but no one really eats whole grains, you know. So, and this is when obesity started taking off, you know, from the 80s onwards. We didn't have a massive problem, certainly when I was growing up uh, in the 1980s when I was in school. It wasn't a big problem in the early 80s. It wasn't a big problem with obesity. So, um, yeah, it took off then, you know, with those dietary guidelines. Uh, it was a little bit of a, a big experiment on, uh, you know, public health and went wrong. Yeah, I mean, I was going to segue into that. It's interesting you note, I mean, in, in Spain, by 2040, they predicted to be the longest living people in the world. And of course, they consume above the 10% recommendation, which still exists in some countries for saturated fat intake. And of course, the French aren't far behind. And these are countries that are living the longest. And so when we talk about dietary patterns, and you alluded to it here, but um, we had Dr. Stevan Van Fleet from Duke University on uh, earlier this season talking about how you know the quality of one's diet influences, obviously, and the quality of the saturated fats and where they're coming from has a big influence on this. So could you talk a little bit about that diet quality piece? I mean, you have a chapter in the book around, yeah. you know, the why cooking matters. Going back to saturated fats, there is still some nutritional and epidemiological research connecting high saturated fat levels in a diet, a Western diet with uh, cardiac uh, risk. For sure. But the problem is that they sort of, they include things like palm oil, which is, you know, it's now, it's now, know increasingly um used in all you know processed foods because it's like got great texture and it tastes okay yeah. it's really cheap but that's you know that that is that is a cardiac risk palmatic acid palm oil um and that's muddied the waters as far as the, the sort of understanding of you know natural saturated fats are not palm oil they are you know the, the saturated fats you get from dairy products and red meat um so yeah Towards the end of the book, I sort of give some just simple advice on, you know, how to reduce your weight set point, not going on a diet, but actually just reduce the amount of insulin blocking leptin, the amount of vegetable oils blocking leptin, improve your cortisol level, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, yes, clean eating. Uh, basically, um, the advice is to go to the, to get your food from the butchers, the green grocers, and the uh, fishmongers. If you get your food from there, it'll be hard to go wrong, right? And you'll lose a lot of weight if you're suffering. Yeah, chuck away the vegetable oils, you know, uh, and that's the main, you know, and throw away the sugar foods and refined carbohydrates if you can. Just have it as a treat now and again. If you can do that and just change the way you, you eat, maybe not, not snack so much, you know, a little bit of slight intermittent fasting or sort of 16-8 type way of eating, go towards that sort of traditional way of having two or three you know, really hearty meals, not snacking too much between meals and having proper mm -hmm. food. That's the type of eating that will actually change people's weight set points. So people, and, uh, and I got a lot of feedback after the book. I've got hundreds of people who come back to me and say, look, I've tried this. It's like, I've lost a lot of weight. I've tried all the diets before. So uh, 
Yeah, that's the that's the clean eating thing. And, and you know, you can't really do it unless you take time uh, to shop for fresh foods um, and to cook it. So yeah, to look after yourself. I mean, actually, these days you can actually get a delivery of fresh food, yeah, from, yeah. so you can get something like Gusto or Hello Fresh, which is actually yeah. great, great, great companies um, that will tell you how to cook the food. But you have to, you can't change your weight set point forever without you know being able to cook you have to be able to cook to be able to insulate yourself from this sort of environment outside mm -hmm. in london or new york or wherever we live in inner cities or western societies you got to insulate yourself from that type of food by just cooking your own food yeah it is amazing how just by cooking your own food all of a sudden the protein intake goes up and vegetable intake goes up and all these processed foods that we've talked about will yeah. decline and so you naturally get this effect that you're after and you start to build some of those habits just a quick break here from part one of my conversation with dr andrew jenkinson do you want to take your nutrition game to the next level do you want to make a bigger impact with your athletes do you want to build better coaching behavior change and relationship skills well it's all here for you in the new basketball performance nutrition online course which is set to launch february 7th 2022 You'll learn from experts working in professional basketball, like longtime NBA sport dietitian Marie Spano, leading sports scientists like FC Barcelona basketball's Frank Garcia, and expert performance psychologist Dr. Alex Auerbach. You'll learn to better assess and understand the physical and energy demands of athletes, fueling and supplement strategies, how body composition can help or potentially hinder performance, as well as in-game and recovery nutrition strategies. But this course isn't just for practitioners working with elite basketball players. It's diving into the art of coaching and behavior change with modules on three mindsets of elite performance, leveraging relationships for performance, and habit formation strategies for success. You'll also get access to live roundtables with experts working in the NBA and pro basketball and earn CEU credits with the NSCA as well along the way. The pre-sale early bird super special is on. You can save $100 off the cost of the course using the promo code basketball. Just head over to performancenutritionpodcast.com. That's performancenutritionpodcast.com. Use the promo code basketball to join the course. And as a special added bonus, you'll get access to the foundations course, a 10 module course in athlete health as well. Hurry, spots are limited for this early bird super special. Fantastic. Now back to part two of my conversation with Dr. Andrew Jenkinson. Um, can we talk a little bit about muscle doc? I mean, uh, it's interesting sure. working with uh, NFL linemen or big rugby type players, you know, some who are technically obese, but in their playing days are carrying loads of muscle mass. And so when we do look at their health markers, blood sugars and inflammation, all these, they're actually tremendous. But when they retire and the training goes down and the muscle mass comes down, if they don't change their ways then they, you know, we see these effects so can you talk a bit about how muscle or even fitness can impact you know insulin sensitivity you know, leptin and, and chronic inflammation yeah you probably know a bit more about that side of things than me um but certainly in the book uh one of the main uh, factors apart from you know our appetite in society so you know these signals telling us how much to eat and when to eat and when to stop the other side of things is the energy expenditure. And it's not just in the gym or, you know, running for the bus or, you know, being active around the office and walking to work and whatever. 
70% of our energy, ex energy expenditure is through our basal metabolism. So the type of energy we need just to heat our bodies, the chemical reactions, beating heart, you know, uh, perfusion of the immune system, these sort of things. 70% of our um, metabolism. And it's very, very dynamic. It's very sort of plastic. It can change a lot uh, within individuals, depending on whether mm. your weight is lower than or your weight set point is or higher. And one of the studies in the book, we'll get onto muscle in a minute, mm. how important this is as far yeah. as this concept. One of the sections in the book looks at these studies where they compare, for instance, cohorts of people who are, should have the same metabolic rate. Uh, so same age, same sex, same muscle mass, same heights, you know, everything. They look the same. Mm -hmm. And you would expect from our medical training, you know, we say, okay, we're going to put in a few uh, factors into a complicated equation and we're going to tell you that you've got a basal metabolism of 1,600 kilocalories a day. Then you add your activity and then you can calculate, you know, how much, how much food you can eat in order to maintain or lose weight. You know? When you look at the top 5% metabolizers in that cohort of people who are ident look identical, top 5% to, to lower 5%, there is a difference of uh, 700 kilocalories per day between you know just the basal metabolism. They can't help it. They can't do anything about it. Mm. This is the equivalent of a 10K run or a big three-course meal. Um, so this is why some people actually find it so easy just to maintain a normal weight and eat a load of food. And some people, you know, not only do they have to be on a diet, but actually also have to go on to the gym, you know, because this massive difference in basal metabolism, which can go up and down depending on that. You know. Now, the book goes into you know, how our metabolism is, uh, is, is changed, our basal metabolism. Again, not really very well understood by mainstream uh, medicine and uh, your average doctors. Um, and there's two factors. One is um, the autonomic nervous system. So this is the thing that you know, everyone knows. It's the fight, fight or flight response. So if you're faced with a mugger or a lion or whatever, mm. you're going to get like your yeah, heart rate's going to start going, your adrenaline's going to start going, uh, you're going to start sweating. Um, you're going to be actually quite strong and fast, you know. Um, mm. So that's a sympathetic drive when you're scared. Uh, you're either like fight or you run away fast. The other drive is a parasympathetic drive when you're actually very, very relaxed at home, you know, listen to some, some music, maybe before bed, your blood pressure's down, you're not heating your body very well, you're preserving energy, now you're ready for bed. That's called a parasympathetic drive. And that's how we traditionally understand the autonomic nervous system. But actually, there is quite a lot of evidence if you look out there that people who overeat get an increased sympathetic drive. So all the time their blood pressure is higher, their pulse is higher, and they're heating their bodies. They're actually expanding energy via this system. The system's not just used to be scared and run away or yeah. fight. It's also used, I think, to expand excess energy taken in, in, for instance, the Western diet. And again, when you look at people who have been uh, on low-calorie diets, they have increased sympathetic drive. We know actually the best thing for treatment of blood pressure is go on a diet. Um, and this is the reason it increases sympathetic drive. And that autonomic nervous system is a, one of the main um, strategies the body uses to try and keep us within this weight set point, depending on, even if we're overeating or under eating, you know, it will just yep. change the amount of energy that we're using. 
The second factor that I've sort of looked into as far as, you know, um, metabolic adaptation is where we get into the muscle. Okay. And this is something called uh, sarcolipin, which is in skeletal muscles. So there's a lot of research out there. I mean, I'm sure you've you've uh, touched on the research in, in in your in your studies in your books on uh, brown adipose tissue. So brown fat in particularly mice, small rodents, their surface to, you know, to 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 weight area they actually get very very cold unless they have little internal warmers. Mm-hmm. Their brown fat actually works as a conduit to convert food energy into thermal energy. So it just keeps them hot. So yeah. a little bit like the um, Brady Brick advert, you can imagine that. It's like it just keeps them all a little internal internal heater. Mm-hmm. We know that uh, humans also have brown fat, uh, particularly babies. So the smaller you are, the more brown fat ratio you have. In adults, it's not really quite as uh, significant. But the researchers are crazy to you know, find something out of that brown fat and actually stimulate it. Because if they could do that, then we would be able to have almost like a dietary uh, or a, a, a way of manipulating our metabolism to just burn off a load of energy so we could you know, lose weight. Um, and there's been some, uh, I'm sure you've looked into it, so the only way of stimulating it is to put someone in a freezer for say, basically cold, um, cold immersions. Cold immersions. So that is not going to become a mainstream therapy. But actually, there is increasing evidence that the skeletal muscle has a type of um, brown fat, so a type of mechanism where food energy or chemical energy from food can actually be uh, converted into thermal energy. It's called thermogenesis. So uncoupling of the, the mitochondria, ATP, um, in, the, yeah, in the mitochondria, in the cellular sort of engine. So this is a really, really important way that, again, we can burn off energy seamlessly if we overeat um, and not put weight on. And again, that's switched off if we go on a diet. Uh, and the other thing that the book looks at, um, as far as muscle is concerned, is if you, uh, you know, if you if you're very sedentary, you don't do any exercise. If it's almost like a cultural thing that you don't do any exercise, and we look at the example is, you know, particularly um, women in the Middle East, culturally, you know, um, they're not really supposed to do a great deal in the daytime. You know, a lot of them have um, help. Um, they don't even have to look at their children. They just sit around. They get sarcopenia, so they get the muscle wasting. Yeah. And these are the women who actually suffer the most with obesity in, you know, in the Middle East. So over 50% of the Arab population, female, are, are, are now obese, over 50%, with about a quarter of the population diabetic. And all of it, I think, is due to sarcopenia. The only exercise they get is going around the shopping mall. Um, yeah. But... Um, it's tough. I mean, the muscle obviously a sponge for glucose, and yeah, yeah. You know, it's, um... I'm actually going to be um, going to be studying your book, Mark. Appreciate <laughs> it. Nice, nice. Uh, which I just bought because actually, I mean, my book didn't really delve too much into muscle because uh, I think it is very important. Um, but I'm going to try and learn a little bit more and uh, and see how I can fit some of my ideas uh, with your ideas in that. Oh, tremendous. Well, listen, I mean, as, as muscle, we talk about, you know, the myokines being signaled and with fat, we have the adipokines and in this COVID environment where we're, people are thinking about how to keep their immune system strong, how to, if they do catch COVID, how to not have an adverse, you know, too adverse a, a time, you know, in your, in your experience with clients, obviously with 
over very overweight obese clients you know it seems like a time where we should be helping folks out in terms of what they're eating and how they're moving and i appreciate that the government guidelines are around prevention but this idea of supporting our immune systems by getting fitter eating better trying to lose some weight you know is there certain messaging or how would how do you communicate that with your patients yes yeah, so patients are increasingly worried about uh the risk of obesity um uh, sort of increasing the risk of, of covid infection and also during lockdown, a lot of people put a lot of weight on. Yeah. So yeah, they're, they're, they're acutely aware that there is that there is issues, and yeah, they're certainly receptive to uh, dietary and lifestyle changes. The problem is most people who come to me in clinic are, are really quite severely obese, so they've got like yeah. full-blown obesity a disease causing leptin resistance. Even with good lifestyle changes, it's not going to totally get rid of the disease. Um, it's like if you got diabetes you can't you know reverse it just with overnight yes the big issue is you know we've had a pandemic now a covid pandemic and we've had massive uh government intervention to, to help stop people dying including you know locking people up for for months on weeks on end yeah um in their own houses now my the part the, the new paperback part of the book has a chapter on covid and it sort of speculates why if we're going to do so much for a, uh, a viral infection, why don't we, you know, just move a little bit towards helping this other pandemic that we've had for the last twenty years? It kills a lot more people uh, every year than or any magnitude, right? Massive amounts of uh, it causes cardiac disease, it causes death, it causes uh, diabetes, you know, uh, it causes cancer. Um, so massive amounts of not just death, but also also unhappiness, suffering, quality yeah. of life. Why can't the government intervene uh, not in a, a, such a way that they did with COVID, but actually in a little bit of a way? You know, we need actually uh, some control on the amount of uh, processed food that the population are exposed to. And the only way of doing that is actually it's a bit political, but is actually to you know tax quite heavily processed foods and to actually put those proceeds into you know proper education about you know just eat normal food go back to normal food don't go to the supermarket you know just buy vegetables meat fish and cook if we can do that you know this pandemic of obesity would actually be um seriously affected in, in a good way um and we would save a lot of lives but the whole crux is you see that people don't understand obesity mm. i think the government would do it if they understood obesity but they don't understand obesity yeah, it's a shame, isn't it? I mean, even in a back garden vegetable patch, you can grow so many vegetables, you have to start giving away to your neighbors because you can't literally get through them fast enough. Um, yeah. And yeah, to your point, the economics of trying to make some of these foods a bit more cost effective would be tremendous to help people out. And of course, hopefully now with maybe some of the remote working, you know, people are working long hours, they don't sleep enough, maybe that can sort of tip the balance and people have a chance to start to, to get into more of these things. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the whole problem is that I mean, the the traditional understanding of obesity is you know, it's just purely energy in and energy out. Yeah. Um, I mean, that is the ultimate, but actually there is a lot before that affecting your behavior and your metabolism. And, you know, if we concentrate just on calories, we're not concentrating on what the food does to our bodies, does to our insulin, does to our cortisol, does to our, you know, omega-3-6 ratio. And you know, the effect that that has on our weight setting, our weight set point. Um, so yeah, that's the sort of the, the, the calorie in, calorie out thing is a bit of a smokescreen, and that's the reason I think that the government still don't really understand 
what to do regarding obesity and really want to want to encourage people just to, you know, try and control your calories. You know, it's not about that. It's actually about controlling the type of food you eat because that's going to control, you know, ultimately the amount of calories you want to put in. Yeah, it is a bit of a crutch, isn't it? Because it doesn't really tell you how to do things like you're mentioning yeah. with the, the appetite and, you know, psychological, emotional stress and how that kicks up, as you described, you know, cortisol and impacting you yeah. know, all, all those pathways. Um, listen, Doc, this has been tremendous. I mean, I really enjoyed the, the book. It takes a wonderful deep dives and, and stories into uh, background information and all this stuff. And, you know, if you had to leave folks with one, uh, one tip to be able to support sort of better health going into 2022, what might you say? So there'd probably be a couple of tips. So the first would be the green graces, butchers and fishmongers diet. Cook your food, don't snack, have a relatively early night, look after yourself, you know, sleep well, and do a little bit of exercise that you actually enjoy you know, two or three times a week. If you do that, you're going to reduce your weight set point. If you're just suffering a little bit with overweight, which is actually what the book's designed for, you're going to lose a stone or two and actually have a better quality of life. 100%. I mean, it's amazing how simple, but not easy. But if you do repeat that, just as you mentioned, that consistency, then it's amazing what people can achieve. So again, Doc, I really appreciate you carving out some time. Where could people stay connected with, with some of your work? And uh, obviously, I imagine Amazon and the re- major booksellers all they can pick up the book. Yeah, so the book, I've got a copy here. So I'll do a plug. Yeah. I read too much on Amazon uh, and major booksellers, including Tesco. Um, if you Google me, you can you get my email address. You can ask questions. Tremendous. Well, we'll include all those links in the show notes so people can get a hold of you as well. And uh, again, really appreciate you carving out some time today. Thanks, Mark. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. For the full video interview, as well as key clips from this episode, check out our YouTube channel, Performance Nutrition Podcast. Finally, if you enjoyed the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. All that good stuff. It's a massive help to the show. Until next time, take care. The Dr. Bub's Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bub's Performance Podcasts.